Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, I need to let you know about a new project. Wouldn't it be great to be able to interact with all sorts of folk who are into historical martial arts in one way or another without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way? I think so. And so I have spent the last many months creating just such an online community, swordpeople.com. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customer. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. At the moment, we have four levels of membership. The first is free. This gives you access to the main discussion areas and events and so on. Secondly, we have the Support Sword People for £5 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Thirdly, we have Solo Scholars at £20 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone. That is solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and the Recreate Historical Swordsmanship from Historical Sources course. And finally, we have Mastering the Art of Arms at £40 a month. This gives you access to all of the above, of course, plus all of my online courses, including the Complete Longsword course, the Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and the new How to Teach course. We will be phasing out the Teachable hosted Mastering the Art of Arms subscription, but don't worry, if you have already bought courses on Teachable, this won't affect them. I am hoping to add premium content from other instructors in the near future. We will also be adding the ability for creators, such as smiths, publishers, and so on, to post their work in a marketplace, so if you're looking for a new sword, new helmet, or new book, you'll know where to go. There will be no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that. This means we will be entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it. So if you're thinking about joining, please consider one of the paid options. You will probably find that there are topics, tags, and so on that you would like added or edited. Let me know what you want and I'll do my best to make it happen. This is for you, so tell me what you want. Please note, there will be teething trouble. This is a first-of-its-kind online community for sword people, and we are new to the Mighty Networks platform. There will be issues that crop up. They will be dealt with as quickly and fairly as possible, but you should expect some technical problems in the beginning. But you should not expect bad behavior. 
The code of conduct is absolute and will be enforced without mercy. The too long didn't read version of that is be nice, be friendly and be fair. Anything that even smells a bit like trolling will result in eviction. So if you think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, go to swordpeople.com and click request to join. It's fast, easy and straightforward. Platforms like this are entirely dependent on network effects. It will only work if people come and join it. It has little value to the single user. So be bold and be brave. If everyone like you joins, it will be awesome. You can get Sword People on your phone or any other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. If you're opting for one of the paid levels, I would greatly appreciate it if you would join on your computer so we don't have to pay 30% of our revenues to the App Store or Android. So I will see you at swordpeople.com. And now without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Ginny Beatty, who is a historical fencer in the SCA, and she took up arms in her late 40s. So without further ado, Ginny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Guy. I'm happy to be here. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I live in the United States in Columbus, Ohio, uh, capital of Ohio. Um, here I've lived in this city for about 25 years. Uh, before okay. that, I lived in Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati, uh Pittsburgh, Florida, and Connecticut. So I've traveled around a bit. <laughs> so what what's wrong with the West Coast then? Uh, right now it's falling into the ocean um, because <laughs> of all the flooding. <laughs> well, I, I only ask because you, you seem to have avoided it. You've been like like top and bottom no, of the I, East I, Coast visited, and a little no, bit in I the middle. I visited there. I have <laughs> a lot of friends there. My partner actually moved from California to Ohio okay. for the same reasons. You know, the weather, the politics, and all that. Oh, but yeah. currently... You know, it's 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 flooding. It you know, there's fires. I mean, the most we have okay. here in Ohio are tornadoes. You know, and those happen very rarely and not in the cities. But uh, and and they take you to us. So yeah, you know. right. And you know, California is a great place to visit. There's Disneyland. There's the the woods, the forests, uh, the beaches. Most importantly, there's the Getty Museum in Los Angeles where and they the have Getty, the Getty yeah. manuscript. Yeah, yeah. Mostly, I visited Northern California, but uh, Southern is definitely on the uh, on the radar sometime in the future um, to the Getty and all that. But I enjoy the Bay Area um, just for but the. What's so nice about Ohio? I, I've I've never been to Ohio. I've been to a lot of America, but I've never been to Ohio. So. What's the attraction, really? Um, the uh, well, it's flat for one thing. We have four seasons. Um, okay. Uh, we have uh, a variety. Uh, uh, we promote a lot of small business here in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in the capital. I live in the capital of the state, so there's a lot of industry surrounding government, uh, insurance, banking. Um, a lot of white collar yeah. work. There's a lot. There's a large entrepreneurial spirit here, and we have swords. Right. Yeah. Well, fair we enough. Have, we, Although I should say I've been to state capitals in America. That yeah. um, well, I mean, Lansing, Michigan, is not exactly the most thriving metropolis. No, no. Um, um, Columbus has a thriving metropolis. We do a lot. I mean, with the along with the capital, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, expansion into some of the, the areas around it that promote uh, small business maker spaces. I have a friend oh, of mine right. who's a professional blacksmith who has his shop uh, right outside of town. Um, he appeared on Forged and Fire, and that helped promote his cool. business as a blacksmith and a teacher. And um, we have uh, professional sports teams. We have hockey. 
We have uh, a large collegiate presence, which also attracts a lot of uh, international students. And so we have a great, what I like about Columbus is the food. With a okay. lot of the culture that comes into Columbus, they bring their food. So just along my street, I live in a suburb, I can get Korean food, Chinese, Thai, um, uh, Russian, French, uh, Japanese, uh, just a lot of different, just a lot wow. of different small cuisines here are available. Uh, okay, Indian is big. Um, yeah. The you're, Honda you're, you're plant, sweet. we have a Honda plant <laughs> up just north. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you're, you're, you're selling me on Columbus. On. <laughs> you're selling me on Columbus. Yeah. Okay. So I should have to include it in my itinerary. Okay. Yeah, it's a great Good place for a foodie and uh, thrift shops. And uh, the culture is very, you know, it's very relaxed and welcoming. Um, we do like our sports, though. Yeah, we do like okay. our, our, our football, American football, college, collegiate football specifically, um, and our professional teams that are and. In the, in the surrounding areas, but promote, mostly Columbus is an Ohio State college football, you know, area. That's our, okay. that's our pro team, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and speaking of food, um, yes. I understand you also are into, interested in historical cookery. Yes. Um, yeah, I started cooking when I was in uh, Girl Scouts when I was a kid. And uh, my mother and I actually helped uh, develop and produce my first feast when I was in college. And so I started out back then there wasn't many research uh, materials available except in research libraries. And when I was at college, they had a reference, you know, a really good reference library. So I was starting from manuscripts and, you know, this also plays into, you know, you know, a lot of the historical sword work is started from manuscripts. So I started with manuscripts in the library and over the decades, it has developed into a more, scholarly body of work, more publications, um, more scholars and everything like that. So I just took mm -hmm. an interest in historical cooking because I've always loved to cook. And within the SCA, uh, one of our things that really people enjoy are banquets and feasts. So right. I design essentially historical themed banquets. Um, I have a team that I've developed over uh, the last 20 years or so, and we produce, you know, banquets. Uh, last weekend, we did a 12th night theme, uh, sort of a buffet style where there is activities and revelry during the day, dancing, socializing and all that. And we produced, you know, uh, meals every couple of hours, kind of like an all day feast. You know, the wow. hobbits would love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, yeah. Feeding people brings me a lot of joy and that brings people together. Uh, so that's one of the things I really enjoy about cooking is the just the body of work that's available out there. I mean, I have an entire bookshelf of nothing but uh, historical cookbooks. And when I go to antique shows, antique stores, or uh, thrift stores, I try and find like ed editions of cookbooks. Uh, like the joy of cooking, I have like several editions starting back in the 40s through present mm -hmm. day because the the uh, content changes over time. Sure. I, yeah, I can find I can find a recipe for like mincemeat pie from 1948 that doesn't exist in a current volume of the same book, you know, the same title book. Wow. So it's it's preserving it's preserving history in a in a sort of way, preserving the culture of the time, and it gives you a snapshot of if you wanted to produce mm. like you know a 1940s you know American American dinner, here's what you here's here's where you can draw from and all that, and it's about you know providing that dining experience that I find really rewarding and enjoyable.
So what's your favorite period to cook in? Um, I prefer, I mean, I've studied a lot of the European cookery styles, uh, but my favorite is actually in the Asian cultures. I uh, developed okay. an interest in uh, Asian cookery a, a long time ago, and I found it was an undis unexplored niche in our in our organization. So I decided to sort of major in that and explore where it took me. And what I found in, uh, and I focused on the 14th century of China, which is right before the Mongol invasion of, of China. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, there is a, the capital city at that time was Hangzhou. And what I found was that the urban development of, you know, sort of the urbanization, the cities and everything like that was far more developed than what I can see comparatively in, you know, Western Europe. So there you've sure. got a lot of city cooking, street food, restaurants, catering, banquets. And I explored that area and I found it really fascinating to find out that in the 1300s that takeout was authentic. And that was like an aha, sort of a light bulb moment for me. <laughs> so, so, hang on, so the, the Chinese were doing takeout in the 13th yeah, century. Yeah, there's pictures. Um, okay. There's uh, drawings of street food and restaurants uh, in, in woodcuts mm -hmm. in museums that show this thing. And there's excerpts of, um, you know, excerpts of these banquets, how these banquets were just so elaborately designed um, for, you know, nobility and, and the royalty in the time, the emperor and all that. And so I mm -hmm. find it fascinating that you have this, this microcosm and at the same time over, you know, comparatively, you know, they're still, you know, emerging from plagues and other things happening in, you know, in, in the area. Um, and so I have it, most of the manuscripts of Western Europe at the time are mostly focused on the nobility. Like, you know, you'll have the Duke of Savoy's banquet, you know, and the whole elaborate sure. description of that. But you really don't hear about, you know, peasant food or city food or anything like that. It, it, it's sort of a strange, you know, comparison contrast that you have all this, this culture, this deep culture in Asia that was largely unexplored until, you know, you had, you know, Marco Polo, who was a great tourist, you know, uh, Ibn Battuta, other people describing it and bringing it back to the West. And they were like, I thought these people were barbarians. It's like, well, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah. I have a, a question. So if you're, say, reconstructing food from 14th century yeah. China, I, I'm assuming you don't read Chinese I do yourself. Not. There was a correct? lot of translations. Okay. Um, one of the books. So what sources are you using? Um, I have a book. There's actually called, a book called Soup for the Khan. It's a uh, translation done by uh, Eugene Anderson and his compatriot, whose name I can't remember right now. They have had it translated and highly annotated, which uh, they have okay. the woodcuts and the prints from the book, uh, from the actual manuscript itself, and then they translate it. So you have all of these lists of, of recipes um, that explain, wow. you know, what this is. Maybe not, and they have measurements which are in the, you know, the the you know, fourteenth century Central Asian Chinese, yeah. at the time. So you sort of have to do a little bit of math and a little try and get the the equivalents to do that to do that. So you have to do a little bit. It's a little bit of extrapolation and a leap of faith on going. Mm -hmm. This is kind of how I interpret this dish, and this is how. I would present it based on based on the material. So a lot of that work right. is a lot of the work in any kind of 
historical context that doesn't have like specific recipes or plates or platters because we don't have photographs. We have drawings, we have prints and everything like that. You, and the ingredients obviously have changed over over the centuries, so you have to sort of give it your best shot as what what's the closest thing you can get to it. Um, also, fortunately, I right. have a lot of Asian grocery stores around town, so I can get the equivalent house. equivalent food um, for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just you know dim sum and you know a lot of Americanized things like chop suey or or or. Uh, you know, fortune cookies or anything. It's nothing like that. These were elaborate banquets designed to its conspicuous consumption. I can, you know, this is how wealthy I am, how important, how powerful I am. It was clearly a demonstration of power, what you provided your guests, that you can provide them on silver and porcelain and, and, and plates like that and have these entertainers and this elaborate tableau of this, of this experience. Um, there's a picture of uh, a scholar's bank wh- where everything is all in small dishes. You know, there's a basically a low tableau. You have all the scholars sort of milling around in this courtyard, and all the dishes are presented on this this low table, and they're all like small plates. It's all very much sampling. It's not a sit down, you know, pile your food up to the top banquet. It's all like just small plate samples and everything like that. Yeah. So that's that's sort of like great. a tasting menu. Yeah of that yeah like a tasting menu mm, yeah pretty much in, like in a, a tasting menu. yeah um but it's huh. sort of a background to this to this to this um to this picture you know so yeah so you're, you're clearly you're clearly very interested in the historical food Absolutely, side of things yeah um but but at some point you decided actually you need to swing swords around so well, you know i happen? use knives in one place so might as well switch to something <laughs> else um, I've had a, yeah, yeah uh, I mean, when I was a kid, my father took me to a Renaissance fair. Um, and, uh, at the time the SCA did a demo there. And so here I am on this, this, you know, eight year old kid looking around and someone puts a, a rattan, you know, rattan sword. This is the armored combat, uh, weapons form is rattan, not steel. So there I am, this eight year old kid, they put a helmet on me. I swung a sword. I'm like, this is really cool. <laughs> And then yeah. when I went to college, uh, there was a demo. I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and uh, there was a demonstration on campus of the local SCA club on campus. And I found out about it from a from a floor mate of mine, and figured out that this is the same group that I saw when I was a kid. So I told my dad about it, and I so I joined up in college. And there was a local event coming in Cincinnati. Uh, which was a coronation event, which is we have um, a semi-annual changeover of the leadership. And so this is elaborate, uh, elaborate, you know, ceremony and daytime activities and feasts and everything like that. So I went and just the pageantry struck me of they were in this cathedral in Covington, Catholic Cathedral in Covington, Kentucky. So you have the large facades and stained glass and everything you know, everything totally medieval gothic mm-hmm. about it. And it was like, wow, this is really cool. So I stuck around and developed interest in other things. And then over time, you know, there, I've done a lot over my participation in the organization. So I've done archery, I've done heraldry, I've done cooking, I've done costume, you know, I make my own costumes, I've made arm cloth armor for other people, I've made armor for myself, you know, I made learn how to make steel armor. 
uh, learn how to make, you know, weapons, things like that. And I decided I had a lot of friends who were fencers in the, in the, in the time. So, you know, I was kind of like, I was getting a little bored and I was like, I want to try something else. Cause I always feel it keeps you young and active if you always explore outside of your comfort zone. So I really, I said, I, I want to try this. Uh, there was the local chapter here in Columbus had a really good teacher. His name's Mike Morabito, who used Degrassi as his platform, his curriculum. And he always mm -hmm. promoted fencing is fun. You should try it. So he had a lot of people involved. Um, he had, you know, weekly classes at our practices and... I decided, you know, what? what's the worst that could happen? I could try it, not like it, and move on, but I, at least I could say I could try it and I can develop an appreciation for those who do like it. So I kept with it. Um, he was a really supportive coach. We followed a basic curriculum of just getting started with the basics of, you know, he used, like I said, uh, a, Degrassi has a very basic curriculum, you know, that's not overloaded for your basic students. So we started with the guards and the wards and the and drilling and footwork and all that. And so I just progressed through it and I kept up with it. I liked it. You know, I liked also like the community itself that was doing swords. And so I, I built this whole new friendship network of people who enjoy, who really enjoy swords. And so I've uh, developed a lot of friends over time and, I progressed in my studies, you know, continuing with Degrassi and then, you know, exploring other schools. I should say Capofero. <laughs> Capofero, Giganti, Fiore. Um, and I, I kind of, and in our organization, we follow different weapons forms. You know, we started with single, single rapier, dagger, single, you know, rapier and dagger, long sword case and uh, buckler and cloak. And sorry, what is what is longsword long, case? Longsword, comma case, two swords. Sorry, okay. two different things. Okay. Yeah, sorry. So case as in case, case of, of rapier. Yeah, case of rapier. Those are our okay. major weapons forms. Um, basically, yeah, you can do you know single rapier, uh, single rapier and dagger, and mm -hmm. a lot of people like to prefer you know single rapier and dagger because it provides you offense and defense. And but at the same time, no one is really working on buckler as much and I sort of just sort of fell into buckler and I like I, I kind of like the idea of having you know a defensive cone around me when I'm fighting because I'm more of a defensive fighter than an action a very more aggressive fighter so I like to have that 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 cone of defense in front of me before I actually go in in for a shot and that that's sort of been my uh my uh claimed not I wouldn't say fame but it's my it's my interest is is buckler more than any other weapons form than than like say dagger because dagger is okay. very popular but I like to promote other weapons so, forms <laughs> what, what do you what do you so you've got a buckler in one yeah. hand is it rapier or rapier. a single I have a sword different size rapier. of rapier okay. I usually I have uh several uh rapiers I've got a darkwood usually a 42 inch I have a castile arms 40 and I think I have another, I just picked up another Darkwood 40. Uh, it's a little lighter for me and it helps. Okay. Um, it just feels more balanced for me to have a shorter sword, not a really long, you know, I know people who use 45 inch swords, which I think is, that's a lot of sword to play with, especially in wheels. It depends, it depends how tall you are. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm five your, your sword length should be proportional I'm to your height. I'm five foot six, so I would prefer a shorter sword, which means my 
my range has got to be a little closer. So my, uh, you know, so getting it, getting in range is a bit challenging, especially when I'm going up against taller opponents with longer arms. I really have to sort of move around them a lot more and, and use my defense more before I can get in a decent shot. So um, what I like to do um, with that is, you know, keep my, keep my buckle in front of me and actually work angles. Um, Degrassi, you know, in his forms had a lot of things with compass steps. So you want to use, you know, a lot of people still seem to be in a very linear front and back approach, but if you can change your mm -hmm. angle just ever so slightly, you can get in under that, cover their sword and get in. So I tend to try and move onto the sides a little bit um, in order to get, get my target, get my target in. And so because our okay, sport is so, more circular than linear than like Olympic fencing. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so you were in the SCA for about 20 years before you took up yeah. fencing. Okay. Um, and the trigger for it was basically you sort of done a bunch of stuff and thought, oh, that kind of looks fun. So taking up fencing, which is really very physical, yes. relatively late. Yeah. Um, now, okay. The oldest student I ever had who successfully took up fencing, he was 65 when he yeah. began. So you're, you're actually, you're actually pretty much in a, in a nice, safe, pretty comfortable much. zone. Yeah, I still have some 40s. fight left in me. <laughs> um, but, um, but what was the, what was the biggest challenge associated with age when you started? Um, I would say recovery. Uh, there's a, there's a few things. Okay. Um, a lot of the sport doesn't promote knowledge of body mechanics as well as you would from like a professional mm -hmm. coach so we tend to sure. get a lot of injury uh specifically repetitive stress injuries uh tennis elbow rotator cuffs, uh, not good uh things like that and so you have to sort of deal with injury and so i had you know a couple bouts of you know ro rotator cuff or not as much rotator cuff as tennis elbow um so i had to do physical therapy for that and while I was trying to rest my right arm, I basically switched to left hand to working with my left hand to basically fight left-handed. So that's how I sort of made, made the best use of my time was left hand with was basically fighting with my left hand. Um, another thing that I've had to contend with with recovery and age is you know just staying in shape, um, which is where I got, I've gotten into cross training with some other activities and i think cross training okay. cross training helps build what you need to do in fencing fencing is essentially an arable sport you're doing it in short bursts of speed so it's you can do on the side you know other activities high intensity interval training um that promote that kind of memory to move faster in short bursts of speed as well as endurance because you you're, you know you're going to be out there you know bouts don't last very long but sometimes there's going to be that waiting period where you and your opponent are like facing off against each other and one of you blinks and then there's the fight <laughs> yeah. you have those kind of showdowns those are kind of fun to watch um you know where someone you're just going to sit there and wait and wait and wait and you have to hold your sword in 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 position without letting it drop or else your guard is down and you're open. So you sort of have to have this, this mindset of patience. You know, it's not just the physical things you're contending with, with fencing, you know, I mean, you have to keep your body in shape. That's one thing, but having your mindset um, tuned as well. I mean, learning to wait out for the right moment for that, you know, for that tempo to get that right shot. Okay. And so you have, to, it's a waiting game. And a lot of, I think a lot of younger, younger people in the sport just want to go out there and just 
stab and stab and stab and stab. You know, they just want to like keep hitting a shot until they get something. And it's like, I don't have that kind of endurance to do that. So I have to sort of wait them out and wait for the right moment. So I'm not going to go out there with a flurry of dodge, spin, parry, strike and everything like that. I'm going to wait. I'm, my, my game is more patience and I'm going to okay. see what happens so that I can, you, you know, basically be more, cons- be more conservative in my action, but be deliberate at the same time. So I know I'm doing the right thing at the right time rather than just like flailing out there. I think that's one of the okay. advantages of age is a little maturity and a little perspective. Um, okay. Could we just dig into the physical training side of things? Sure. For a minute? So what exactly, what exactly have you been doing to get fencing fit and stay okay. that way? Um, I participate in several activities. One of them is um, aqua aerobics, which is a pool based aerobics activity where it promotes where it's endurance training it provides water resistance because you know you can support your body better in water and you're not dealing with gravity and you know movement as such but it still is it, it doesn't stress, it the, doesn't joints stress the joints and um i go to a, a, a good fitness center here in, in columbus that is more geared towards the older crowd um it's a uh, it's tied to um one of the hospital networks that does heart health, cardiac rehab, physical therapy, and all that. So they have a very good pool. They have a warm water pool. They have a lap pool. So the, the aerobics classes are done in the pool. And I do a interval training class where you're doing, you know, bursts. Of, you're basically building up speed and then going down. And so you do like 30, 60, 90 intervals of a certain activity. And then you switch to a different activity like jogging or, you know, lunging or... So hang on, one, one second. So the aqua aerobics and the high int- high intensity interval training—they're two separate things. Uh, no, they're the same. Yeah, they're this. Okay, because how do you jog in water? You jog in water. It's it's you just jog in water. You're not going very fast, but you're going okay. strong. You know, I mean, where are you? Okay. So are your are your are your feet on yeah, the ground? Yeah, it's in a, the pool. It's, a, it's like a pool. Oh right. It's not. It's a four foot depth of a pool. So you're not basically right. up okay. to your, basically up to your chest in water. I mean, you're not treading okay. water. That's a different activity. Um, but you're basically yeah. jogging in water. You're running, you know, running, running in water. And then when I'm not doing that, sometimes I'll uh, block a book, a book, a block of time to run laps in the pool. Just do jogging in the pool, okay. you know, to get that strength. So you <laughs> okay. get the resistance training. Yeah. You get more strength. You don't get necessarily speed, but your muscles are definitely being worked harder in the pool than yeah, you be. and you don't get the you don't get the impact right, from the, the ground that damages your ankles and knees and all that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. aerobics is really good. I also do recumbent cycling, um, which again is supporting my back but still working my legs um, at different speed, different rates of speed. So, so is that is that a a static a bike, bike or is that yeah. on the road? It's a seated bike. Basically, you're basically sorry. But is it is so you're so you're not moving. You're because I have a friend who has a recumbent bike that he cycles around the streets of Helsinki. Um, but are we, no, are we doing, a, are you doing this in the gym? Are you doing bike this? in the gym? Yeah, okay. it's a recumbent bike okay. in the gym. You're basically seated. You have a screen. It has different programs you can plug into. Yeah. Um, that you can do different rates of speed, or you can just cycle as much as you want. So I do that sometimes as a warm up. Um, as a as a warm up to you know getting my getting my legs warmed up for other activities. And then I also have uh, an occasional weight routine with um, not mm-hmm. like weightlifting, not like barbells or anything like that. But there's machines for legs, oh, yeah. adductors, adductors, uh, 
chest presses, uh, rowing, you know, the seated row where you're pulling back small amounts of weight. Because you need, I mean, you need to build up your, you know, the mus- your musculature as well to support, you know, holding a, you know, holding a three-pound sword. I mean, yeah, it doesn't weigh like much, sure. but when you're holding it for this amount of time, you need to support your, yeah. your frame. Um, Honestly, most of my training, maybe 90% of my training is done without a sword. Yeah. Because most of it is, is getting strong enough, flexible enough, fit right. enough for the sword work to actually be useful. Right. The sword, the sword is almost like the last thing you want to do. But how we're trained right. is it's the first thing they put in your hand. You know, that's the, that's the <laughs> Not in my style. Not in not my in style. In my style, you learn, I guess, how, I you learn how to do a proper push-up. Yeah. But my experience <laughs> yeah. so, is that's, you know, unless you have a really good trainer who's going to say, no, we're going to put these swords down and we're going to work on everything else up to that. Like, I, when I'm coaching a beginning fencer, I like to start with footwork. I like to start with the feet because you need to move in sure. order to move the sword. So... Unfortunately, some of these, oh, no, I'm going to hold a sword. I'm like, all right, here's a sword. You do this, and then we're going to get back to footwork later. So I'm a, I'm a big promotion of, yeah. promoter of footwork, and that gets into the other thing that I do. My One of my other favorite hobbies is ballroom dance um, because I think ballroom dance is a great uh, complement as far as cross-training goes because you're working, you're, you're building, you know, you have – Footwork, obviously, you have footwork patterns. You have repetitive steps. You also are building your framework. You have to keep a stable frame. You know, I mean, you're not just, and you're yeah. working with a partner. Um, so what I like, although it is, yeah. it is quite different. I mean, I did tango. Yeah, I love tango uh, for a while. Many years ago, when I was single, I thought I'll go to a tango class and maybe I'll, I'll meet some girls there. And it, that didn't, that part of it didn't work out. The tango was fun, but for me. The critical moment where it went from being this is really hard to this is really easy, when I realized it's not like wrestling yeah. where your opponent is working against you. It's more like riding where you just have to give the correct signals. Right. There's definitely cute. I mean, my uh, I've had done uh, ballroom dance for four years and my uh, teacher, uh, Joey White, is a really good instructor because he under uh, he understands how I'm wired as one thing. He's not just teaching me dance. I mean, that's what we started out. We had to learn the patterns first. We had to learn how the feet work. I had to learn how to, you know, trust my feet essentially to make it automatic, make it yeah. more automatic. And then we were sort of worked our way up to to working with a stable frame because you know I'm you know as as a woman you're mostly the follower, but that doesn't you know, dismiss you from keeping your frame and learning how to follow the cues of the lead. So I have to be physically able to feel those leads because it's basically, it's a pressure. It's a, it's, it's a touch. It's a turn and you have your body, your entire body has to be completely engaged in this, in this, in this performance, in this communication, in this, you know, there's this, connection that you have to stay connected with your partner or else the entire dance fails you cannot the the load of the dance is not entirely on the lead it's a cooperative partnership yeah and um so there's where the communication is going in it's a it's a conversation you know and you're moving on the floor to a certain rhythm and a certain tempo and a music and a style so you're learning to Along of it, you're building a re- trusted relationship with your partner because you have to trust them to get you through the right area, and they have to trust you to listen and pay attention, or else it's it's a failure. And the same thing I think works in 
fencing combat as well. You have to trust your opponent. Your opponent are ha actually having a conversation with swords, you know, and then you sort of dance around each other. And then eventually there's that moment. It's like, all right, now we go. And it's, that's what makes it enjoyable is that energy, sort of that ener energetic connection is making it, you know, you're, you're just, you know, playing tag with swords and having fun doing it <laughs> in different forms. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I just, I mean, fencing, and this is where I'm getting into, um, with ballroom dance or any other cross training activity is fencing has made me a better dancer because I pay attention to tempo and timing and movement, but dancing has made me a better fencer because um, of all the ancillary skills that I'm learning with stability, with agility, with endurance and the mindset and patience and aware bot mechanic, body mechanics, awareness, you know, that all, I mean, mm. I've had friends who've seen me, you know, do this as I was, you know, learning how to fence, you know, going, hey, your fencing is improving, your defense is better, you're doing this, and you feel more comfortable. The thing is being comfortable in your skin, you know, that's the important thing is you can just let the movement take care of itself because you've already trained, you know, trained everything into it already. So all you can do is you can just, once everything is focused and plugged in, it's more autonomous. It's less actually. It's less work. I'm discovering now um, with my with my teacher. We're working more on finesse. I mean, we have the patterns down. You know, the muscle memory is there. We're just right now. It's in a set. We're doing um, a lot more fine tuning of the footwork, the musculature. I mean, like even doing like an, you know ankle exercises, uh, calf. You know, it, working the legs, working the core. The core is really essential because not just your legs just don't lift your legs. Your entire core is going to help you move your body. So keeping your frame stable is going to move your legs forward rather than just moving your legs forward. And that eventually promotes a little more speed. Speed is the last thing you really want to focus on because, you know, you want to work slow because your muscles have to learn how to do this. And eventually as you become more comfortable, more accustomed to it, as it becomes more automatic, speed will eventually happen, you know? Yeah. The, the mantra is slow um, smooth. Slow is yeah. smooth, smooth is right, fast. Right, slow yeah. is smooth. And um, another thing with dance, um, and this is where I, I attended a seminar a few months ago uh, hosted by Kayatan Sadowski, uh, Kaya uh, Sports, yeah. and in Baltimore, Maryland, on the Atlantic side of the coast, <laughs> hosted by uh, Hema School there in Annapolis. And she had a session called, she had a seminar called Dance Fight. He had. Yeah. He had. He had. I'm sorry. My apologies. Yeah. That's a new yeah. transition. Right. Yes. Um, I yeah, met yeah. him at, at the event, uh, finally. And uh, so, uh, yeah, Kayatan and other instructors, Damon Steth. There was also a longsword instructor who taught waltz as a, 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 a turnover into moving your body and moving the longsword better. That's you're more engaged. You're using the whole body to move the longsword rather than just your arms. We had a modern mm -hmm. dance instructor where we did some little out of the box movement, you know, legwork, footwork, crawling on the floor, things like that. More, she was more. She's also a a a, a sword person, and she does a long sword, and she's also she grappling. You know, so we were learning some, you know, groundwork movement. We had a ballet instructor who's also a long sword fighter. She's from Texas. I'm. I apologize if I don't remember all of the names. Was that Anna Beard? I believe so. 
I believe so. Yeah, because because most of the people who are at that event yeah. have been on this show before. Okay. Um, Kaya, Kaya was like episode four, yeah. I think, and Damon's been yeah. on, and Anna's yeah. been on. Uh, yeah, so it was basically you were hanging out with a bunch of my yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, and it was like I was <laughs> I was really excited because this is kind of where I was leading to with dancing and fighting being complementary activities, and so I was thinking about this earlier this year about well, you know, I can maybe like show my fencing community in the SCA the the connections because. In the Renaissance, sword masters were also dance masters as well. There's definitely a connection there. Commonly. Commonly, yeah. So why not bring that to, you know, shine a light on that and people making the same connection. So I took what I had learned from that six-hour seminar. And for even someone my age, I still kept up. I was sore as heck the next day. I mean, it was a two-day seminar. And I was like, I was so exhausted the next day, but I, because of the training I was doing, the endurance um, and all that, I was still able to keep up margin, you know, not with the same as some of the younger people, but I was not, I didn't drop out. I kept going with it, sure. you know, so that's a credit to Excellent. my being. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not the most competitive person, but I still get out there and try. It's, it's, uh, you know, I still get out there and keep, just keep moving. Um, I think that's a key to not aging and getting old and having an old, tired mindset. I think you need to keep moving, keep growing, keep learning. I think that keeps you young. Um, okay, here's something that will make yeah. you laugh. Right, a friend of mine who I went to university with after we graduated, long after, um, she said that she was thinking about going back to university to become a doctor because she wanted to be a yeah. doctor. But she was like, you know, but, yeah, maybe I'm a bit too old for it. I don't know. And my response was, well, in five or six years' time, you're going to be five or six years older anyway, but you can choose whether you're five or six years older and a doctor right. or five or six years older and not a doctor. Right. It's up to you. And so she went back to university and she, she graduated and, and became a doctor, right? And But she, she asked me that question when she was, I think, 27. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right so 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 I, I say the same thing when someone says you know well you know i'm 55 or whatever and I, i'm really into swords. i really like the idea of swords and stuff but i'm too old for this i'm like you're never going to be younger than you exactly, are now yeah so you might as well start now right right i mean i was on um one of our large events in pennsylvania in the summer Pensac war um we do mm -hmm. basically fencing you know we do fencing melees there um, which is a whole nother creature entirely. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started. It's, it's, it's weird. It's, uh, you know, running with swords and playing tag. It's, they're trying to emulate what the armored combatants do. And it's, it's a whole different game entirely. And they try and get us to sure. do both tournament and melee. And it's completely different sports, different mindsets and all that. But we're all like, a lot of the people go like, yay team, we're all going to do melee. And I'm like, no, I, I, I'll, I'll be happy to referee and marshal and keep you all safe, but you go do your thing. I love what they do. I, I, I'm glad it builds camaraderie and it gives them a venue to do this, but it's not my jam. It's not my thing. And I, I applaud everyone who wants to put the effort into building cool strategies and, you know, battles and line fights and all that. But it's not it's not my thing. But I, I, I admire everyone who wants to do that. Anyway. Um, getting back to that and age, we, I was on a unit that was, um, uh, assigned a task to go attack the other line. Now that unit, 
was basically made up of people whose average age was about 50. (laughs) (laughs) So I was the youngest one of that. And this is about five years ago. So I was like, you know, just like early, I was like, you know, 52 or something like that. So we did this thing, you know, there's about five or six of us um, uh, called the Angry Bird Squad because we were all, we all had bestowed awards for service in our organization called the Pelican. So, um, and the Pelicans are known for, in the medieval period, known for like sacrificing themselves for their children and everything like that. So this unit was made up of old grizzled Pelicans who who were fencers, right? And so we were on the, we were tasked to go get this unit on the other side, which was made up of, you know, their, the other side's leaders and royalty and everything like that. So we went there and we, we defeated them and we basically just went there and in our unit and mowed them down and came back and um, let go of the outcome, had fun doing it. And then we got recognized for that. We got a group um, bravery award for doing that. So, and you know, and the king at the time was a really good friend of mine, and he said he gave us this award for just doing something spectacular <laughs> for doing this. He was like, we, you know, we don't know if we're going to get an award for this. We just went and did it, and was having, and we're having a lot of fun. So we got recognized uh, for for bravery for this unit whose average age was fifty, and so the young kids around us are just going, what? You can still do this? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the old age and treachery line. <laughs> right. right. Like, you know, my, my old fencing coach, Bert Bracewell, used to say, you know, youth and vigor are no match for old right. age and treachery. Right, right. So, yeah, we're, we're, still out, we're still out there playing, and it's great. And, and these are friends of mine who have been fencing for a while since their late 20s, early. So they have decades more experience than I do, decades more injury, decades more this, more more renowned, more this is that, but we all came together and did this thing. It didn't matter, you know, age level, experience level, or, you know, rank level or anything like that. We just went out collectively and did the thing. And that's really, and that's a lot of fun. That's a lot of the joy I like out of this sport is the collective, the community, the camaraderie and everything like that. Not just the single just a single thing. I mean, yes, when you're on the when you're on the list, when you're in a tournament, that's you and your opponent. That's the singular thing. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to do something that's a solo, uh, a, a, an individual thing. When I'm cooking, that's a team activity, and I love it. But I wanted to do something that really helped me individually that I could do myself. You know, even though there's an entire community mm-hmm. around me, I, it's just me and my opponent on that field, just like that, rather than. You know, hey, I need you to do this sure. and this and this and this. It's a different. It was just a shift. I I feel I needed to to keep growing and all that. Just, it, yeah. Now you you brought up cookery yes. again. So, um, what are your views on sports nutrition? Oh, I I'm a fan of sports nutrition. I think it's a highly but specifically specifically. specifically I think it's yeah. it's important to have a plan, have a nutrition plan. Okay. Um, while you're training. Um and. So what's yours? Mine is uh, when I'm, you know, when I'm during my daily, my daily nutrition is more pro- uh, high protein breakfast, usually eggs or nuts and fruit and toast. Mm-hmm. Um, when before I train, before I go to practice, I have a small meal because I don't want to load down my system with a lot of carbohydrates and calories and everything like that, because it's going to slow me down. All the blood flow is going to go into the system and, you know, do that. So I have a light meal before practice. We go out afterwards um, f- 
so I have a more of a recovery snack after that, usually salad, lots of fluids and everything like that for recovery. So, and then during the day with a, when I'm at a tournament, I'm going to be doing my, uh, sort of my, my snack plan is to have a meal in the morning, a, a you know, protein based meal in the morning, fluids, hydration, small snacks during the day to keep my energy level up and then recovery afterwards because you need to keep those keep the calories going you're not going to be able to process them immediately so you kind of have to have a store of of glycogen energy and everything like that to the to the to the moment so your your plan ahead of time has to be you know keeping you know building up your energy stores um so you have a tank okay so So what what kind of what are you having for snacks? So to my mind, snacks is the hardest um, nut to usually, crack. Like, um, meals are quite easy to get right, but snacks um, that don't screw you up are quite um, hard. I've um, mostly my snacks include like nuts, uh, cheeses, liquids, small digestible, easily digestible meals. Not like sandwich, not like heavy sandwiches or pasta or anything like that. It's got to be something small and digest, easily digestible. Um, you know, so like a handful of nuts and yeah. glass yeah, of water, maybe a piece of cheese. Yeah, dried okay. fruit um, gives you that sugar, uh, gives you a little bit of sugar to keep your blood sugar blood sugar up. It's also going to depend on what your body type is, especially if you're diabetic. You're going to be, you know, it, it's got to be individually tailored. No one can actually have the same of kind of meal to do that. So I'm a fan of smaller, smaller, more frequent meals because I'm hypoglycemic. So I need to keep my my blood sugar level uh, okay. rather than having this giant carb loaded breakfast of like waffles and danish yeah. and donuts and stuff like so, that because you know that'll spike my blood sugar within an hour and then it'll crash and bad things happen yeah so <laughs> can, why why if you don't mind, why are you hyperglycemic um it's genetic it's it's a genetic okay. thing it's um so something i've i've recognized over time that you know that's just how my my body is it's it's been like that since i was a young adult so i recognize that i can't have all the sweets and sugars and things like that because it'll knock it'll lock me out it's the opposite of diabetes um i mean right. you know because that's that's a different it's a different condition but, but the treatment is almost the same right the avoid same, sugar but it's, it, it's different there's different outcomes but the reason is different yeah, i'm yeah, not yeah. you know sure. i don't need i'm not it's not an insulin you know, I'm not on medication for it. It's something that you have to control no, sure. with diet and nutrition. So the moderate amounts yeah. of protein, the lower carbohydrates, vegetables, fresh fruit or something like that are, are key to having a balanced level of, of balanced level of nutrition and energy as well as blood sugar because there have been times where, you know, during you know, late afternoon or something like that before I was more aware of my nutritional needs, where three o'clock comes around, I'm starving. Or I had this really big lunch and I fall asleep right after work, you know. So yeah. I have this huge, you know, burger sandwich, whatever, shake, Coke, whatever. And an hour later, I'm like conked out at my desk. So then I have to counter yeah. that by, all right, I have to get something to eat and a cup of coffee to spike it up again. And that's not a very good cycle to have. So now no. I have, you know, a balanced a breakfast, a moderate lunch, like a a wrap, you know, a chicken wrap with tortilla or a chicken salad um, or tuna fish salad, something small, a small snack after work, like cheese and crackers, you know, a little bit of, you know, something. And then dinner is, you know, a little larger, you know, a little bit, you know, yeah. I mean, I love to cook. My partner likes to cook. And uh, so, um, and then usually Thursday after I come back from dance class is pizza night. 
I'm not cooking that day because I have a lesson, you know, from 6 to yeah. 7.30 and I'm coming back and I'm like, all right, I don't have the time and energy to cook. So it's usually either buying a, you know, buying frozen pizza, cooking it or ordering a pizza from the local pizza shop around here. Um, so that's, there's Excellent. that. And otherwise I'll like, you know, I love cooking breakfast, uh, you know, uh, waffles, eggs, biscuits and gravy, things like that, which is a American Southern. Very American. Yeah. Very American. Yeah. American yeah. Southern, American Southern treat, you know, um, with, yeah. which I like to put on top of waffles and all that. So, yeah. So yeah, that's the part where nutrition and recovery, you know, nutrition and recovery are important. So, and then after events, you know, after events, everyone likes to go out to dinner or eat feasts. And that's where your recovery comes in. You know, um, I find um, milkshakes very restorative because you have, you know, the, the dairy, you know, um, the, the trans it's easily transported, easily digestible than like something solid. So you've got the liquid, you have the sugar, you've got the milk protein, the lactose to sort of help restore you. And then more fluids. Um, I like... Uh, different i like a fruit-based uh energy energy drink that's not that's not all sugary like gatorade it's called scratch mm -hmm. it's more fruit fruit sugars um rather than okay. uh like high fructose corn syrup or any other of the other yeah i I, I think high fructose corn syrup does not belong in the no, human diet no it does not i don't think I anyone should ever we, eat we it it's disgusting we actively avoid any product with uh, yeah. fructose corn syrup, especially like bread or anything like that. We check, you know, we're label checking when we're grocery shopping yeah, yeah. and we try to eliminate anything with high fructose corn syrup, natural sugars, you know, like even maple syrup, you know, you want to get the syrup that's not, yeah, it's expensive, but you're not putting this, this crap in your body. You know, um, yeah. I don't use white sugar a lot in, in my daily, I don't add sugar to things unless I'm baking, even my morning coffee is like coffee and milk and that's it. Or tea is straight up, you know, no extra sugar, or anything like that. No real lumps of sugar because I can taste the difference. Sure. I don't know if it's me personally, but sometimes after I have like something with sugar in it or sugar salt, solid, it tastes sour. A few minutes later, it's a weird sensation for me that I do that. So I tend mm. to avoid sugars and artificial sweeteners as much as possible for me. You know, because I like the actual flavor of the item itself. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's your preferred recovery drink? So milkshakes are one option. Um, um, I, anything else? Uh, usually uh, I make a, I make a, a, a fruit, usually a fruit smoothie, uh, frozen fruit, okay. um, frozen fruit, some protein powder, some water. I have a little blender. I make that up. I, you know, to, especially after water aerobics, my body's really like... My, my legs feel like jello after that. So it's really shaky. Yeah, yeah. So I have to recover fairly quickly uh, to do that. So usually, but also in, in the water, you're, you're losing a lot of energy through heat. I need to replace it yeah. quick. You know, qu as soon as I get home or on the way home, like on, um, yeah. you know, like the other day, I, the, the, um, the front desk of the, of the facility has, you know, a, a, a case of, you know, different, drinks and Gatorade, vitamin water, everything like that. I like vitamin. I like the, the product called vitamin water, which is restorative. It doesn't, it's not as cloying as Gatorade and it tastes good to me. So that helped me get, at least get my blood sugar up to a level where I can function. And then I go home and then make, you know, it's dinner time. So there's like I said, yeah. chicken salads. Like so we should, we should probably highlight the fact that 
you are naturally hypoglycemic. Yeah. And so you're taking these sugars to restore your blood sugar to a normal Correct. level. Correct. Yeah. Right? Someone who is not hypoglycemic following the same dietary right. program right. would probably put on a load of weight really quickly and be really unfit because all of that extra sugar yeah. is yeah, not necessary. I mean, yeah. With, with hypoglycemic also comes uh, conditions known as insulin resistance, which I... I yeah. have insulin. I process it. I just process it differently. So it's hard for me to lose weight. So I need the higher proteins, you know, and less sure. sugars to store because I'm, I'm, I'm five, six and, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little fluffy around the edges, but I'm still active. You know, now, all of this, sure. all of this is not all fat. There's muscle underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what I keep saying yeah. as well. It's like, no, I have abs. Yeah. They're just underneath. They're just underneath <laughs> this, 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 this layer, this layer, this, this nice curvy layer this, is all that. So this is essential, essential installation, exactly, you know, especially if you're going to be swimming. I'm, and I, uh, you know, derived from good, hearty Western Europe peasant stock. You know, I'm not going to starve anytime soon. You know? Excellent. Uh, so, what, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? You seem to have loads and loads of yeah, things. Yeah, so loads and loads what, of things. What's, what's I mean, next? The one thing I'm getting started on is this concept of of of, of dancing and fighting. Uh, you know, coordinating okay. the activities, making. You know, um, I've just got the this idea of this is important for people to know about cross training. Um, you know, they want to understand their 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 structure. So, um, I took the ideas I learned from the dance fight seminar, Kayatan and all them. I mean, that was like, you know, 12 hours and condensed some of the highlights into like one hour where I talked about, you know, we sort of, I sort of did a top down approach, sort of head, shoulders, knees and toes, you know, like your head yeah. does this, these are your shoulders, keep a stable frame, you know, your core is important, your legs are important, your feet are important. And just sort of went through like layer by layer of the why behind it, you know, if you have a stable, you know, your stable, mm -hmm. your shoulders really hold your, you know, your shoulders and your scapula hold your weapon more than your arms do. And that will, having that supportive frame will reduce injury. You're not just taking your arm and just going out there wailing on someone like holding a baseball bat, because that's going to lead to your repetitive stress injury with your joints. So you need your shoulders in there to, and your core to help move the sword forward faster. There's a better flow. Um, so we actually demonstrated that. I had a friend of mine who was a massage therapist in my class. And, de you know, basically I stood there and she pointed out all the different muscle groups and why they're important to support. And then I had partner, you know, part some, some partners in the audience help me demonstrate, you know, you know, just swinging a sword with my arm versus swinging a sword with my entire body with, you know, with the whole core rotation. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of people going, oh, that's really cool. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Or <laughs> sure. moving your legs, yeah, you know, using your, engaging your obliques to move your legs forward and not just your legs and all that. So Yeah, I mean, it's been my experience that almost everybody is holding their sword at least slightly yeah. wrong. And so their mechanics are slightly yeah. out already as soon as they pick it uh -huh. up. Um, and, you know, I spend a lot of time on mechanics. Yeah going down into the really yeah, do you, depth uh, of detail. Do you notice a difference between um, female body mechanics and male body mechanics when you're training people? Is there a difference because of the, the way our bodies are, are, are structured? Okay, somebody, somebody, should we say somebody with a female pattern pelvis Correct. Yeah. is going to have a different sort of um, organization uh -huh. 
particularly um, ankles, knees, and hips, yeah. the knees are going to tend to come in a little yeah. bit. So there's things you have to do about mm-hmm. that. From the waist up, it's less of an issue, mm-hmm. except that female skeletons tend to be more prone to hypermobility. So there are things you have to do. For example, in a push-up position, yeah. um, whereas um, somebody with a male skeleton can usually lock their arms out and rest on their uh-huh. arms without doing any damage. If someone with a female skeleton, female joints does that, the elbows slightly hyperextend. Yeah. And particularly with a sword, that hyperextension of the elbow is really damaging. Uh-huh. So so the, the rules are the same. Uh-huh. The specific implementation of the rules changes depending on your hypermobility, depending on the shape of your pelvis. Although I would, I would actually say that there is as much variation between one male or female and the next uh-huh. as there is between male as a group and female right, as right. a group. Um, so it's not like, it's not like this is correct for all male pattern skeletons because there are some hypermobile. Oh, I men, do, I know not. several people who right. are hypermobile, um, of both, right. both, uh, so, yeah, so and all that entails. Yeah. So it's a kind of, the male-female distinction is a useful... You need to know about it, and it's a useful sort of mm, division, so long as you understand that it's a Venn diagram that right, overlaps. Right. It's not two separate circles. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, and and it can... The thing is, it can lead to lazy teaching uh-huh. because you say, okay, women do this, men do that. Um, and... Well, that leaves the non-binaries completely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There, <laughs> right. There's been a, and, and a also, rise of. I mean, I, I've seen more, more non-binaries enter the organization and all that, and so we have to be very sensitive to everybody's physical physical needs as far as teaching sure. them, you know, as well as and, and all yeah. that. Yeah. But but also also the the thing about the knees yes. and and the pelvis, it's true for should we say most people with a female skeleton uh-huh. but not all right. right because some women have skeletons that are some people who are like born female have skeletons that are closer to a male pattern and some people who are born male have skeletons that are closer to a female pattern it's not it's it's, it's not cut and dry it's not yeah. useful well, to make a really a yeah full yeah spectrum of conditions for any exactly. any skeleton any any person so 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 what i what i try to do is i teach students the correct relationship uh-huh between ankle and knee and hip uh-huh. and how to connect the sword to the ground, etc., uh-huh. And then we come up with adjustments for that specific person's specific skeleton. And yes, generally speaking, these kinds of um, emphases or approaches are going to be more commonly used with women, uh-huh. but that's not a hard and fast okay. one. So, um, so, yeah, that's, so there is a difference. So, but we've been talking about what you have yeah. done what is there in the back of your head thinking, do you know what? I really would like to get to this one day. Is there anything? Besides just, I don't know. I've got a lot on my plate right now. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I mean, seriously, quite a common, quite a yeah, common. I got a um, lot of like, a lot of my plate right now. I mean, it's a new year. Is, I've got you know, yeah, goals yeah. I want to meet in my work life, goals here, goals in other places and everything like that. So it's about, a, it's a bit of balancing act for quite some time. So a lot of it is like finding the time, the space, the budget, you know, to yeah. travel, to uh, 
to do things, everything like that. Okay. That's sort of where I'm at right now. I mean, my so maybe work-life balance is the is the yeah. Thing to a fix. lot of it is balance. I mean, okay. uh, my job is fairly stable uh, with what I do here. I work for a, 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 a health network, a hospital network here in Central Ohio as an analyst. So I do a lot with reporting, spreadsheets, uh, a lot of that with the insurance industry. So that sort of keeps my mind active uh, to do that. Um, I do a lot of reporting for management level uh, in our revenue for our revenue cycle part of our division. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of analytics. I'm in my head a lot during the day. So when I'm yeah. not on the clock, I want to do something that's not exactly in my head all the time. I want to be a little bit more out there. Sure. <laughs> so I tend to like, and yeah. I work from home, I work remotely. And so usually I want to be out of the house <laughs> as much as possible. So I will like, put down, <laughs> you know, clock out for the day, shut down my computer and then go somewhere, go get out, go to the gym, go to a park, walk in the park. If it's a nice day out, or bundle up if it's not, you know, there have been times in the middle of winter, yeah. I bundle up coat, hat, gloves, ski pants, go to, just go to a lake and sit on the beach for a while. It's cold, it's dreary, but it's outside. <laughs> yeah. So, so away from the computer. Away from, anything yeah. away from the computer is, is great because I'm like on too much screen time <laughs> all the time. So I want to be outside sure. doing something, interacting live with other humans rather than on a screen and all that, you know, yeah. that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, uh, but both my partner and I, uh, he and I love to travel. You know, we, we like to have great adventures. Um, even during shutdown, the COVID shutdown here, we try to get small outdoor trips to parks around the area, other places. Mm. I mean, planning a trip was challenging with all the regulations during the time. We were trying to plan a trip to Maine and we were almost to the point of going and then New York said a shutdown. You know, at the like, no, yeah. if you come here, you have to isolate for two weeks and then go. It's like, no. So we had to plan another trip where, you know, we had to plan another trip. So where can we go that's fun, isolated, and safe? And so we ended up going another yeah. direction entirely and made a little mini vacation out of that. You know, we ended up going more southeast to West Virginia to these um, cold springs, and then which was near uh, Maryland. So we went to a couple battlefields. Uh, we went to Gettysburg uh, to see that, you know, mm -hmm. the national park there, see the presidential home of Dwight Eisenhower and just sort of see the country itself, you know, back road, back yeah. road kind of traveling, the stuff you don't see in your travel log, you know, off the beaten path kind of stuff, I think is fascinating and all that. So if there was one place in the world, the world? that you could go, where would you like mm, to go? I'm, I'm really, I really want to go see Italy, Northern Italy. Like the Milan, yes, Milan area. good choice. Northern Italy, the Italian Alps. I think that area is fascinating. Um, it's fabulous. Yeah, I'd love to see the museums and all that. I mean, I haven't done much international travel. I've been, you know, Canada is right there. I've been there. But uh, British Isles, I've been to England, Scotland, Ireland, and Ireland. Um, and I love the countries. I love, I love the country there. My favorite place in Scotland is Glasgow. I love that city. Oh, really? I love it. It's got okay. a, it's modern and ancient at the same time. It's got this grit about it that I find fascinating. I mean, Edinburgh was mm -hmm. lovely. I loved going through the old areas, you know, places where, you know, movies were filmed. They were filming the latest Avengers movie when I was there back in uh, 2017. Um, so that was kind of fun to see. And then we'd go off to the Highlands and, you know, we took a bus tour of Highlands, Loch Ness and all that. Mm -hmm. But Glasgow, 
really resonated with me. You know, it was really, it was really okay. nice. I really enjoyed that. Oh, Did you get to go to the Kelvin Grove Museum? In I Glasgow? can't remember if I went to that. Enormous place. They have a Spitfire literally hanging up inside. No, the museum. we didn't. The one we did go to the <gasps> automotive museum there. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Next time, Kelvin Grove okay, Museum. They, it has a fabulous had, arms and we armor on, collection. We were on kind of a schedule, fabulous. so we couldn't see everything. I mean, okay. we did go to, you know, we did go to Culloden. You know, in Scotland, we went to Culloden, and we went to Edinburgh Castle and spent the day there. Mm-hmm. And then Ireland was lovely, but, you know, with the ring okay. of but the Kelvin Grove, Kelvin Grove. The, I will the write Cal- that down. The Kelvin Grove Museum, it. It, has the, it has the best arms and armor oh, collection yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. By I far. I remember. Uh, and then when I have to go back to England, I'd like to go to, what's it? Where is, where is it now? Leeds? The armor? Leeds, Leeds. yes. Okay. Royal Armouries, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Leeds was fun. Uh, the Cleveland Museum here in Ohio has a great armor exhibit as well. You know, it's got a very nice exhibit hall of, of 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 swords and armor, arms and armor, and all that. So if you're ever in the area, I know people who can give you a tour. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Uh, okay, my last question: yeah. um, Somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts, or indeed historical cookery. Uh, you can take yeah. a pick worldwide. How would you spend it? Uh First of all, I mean, once, once I get the money, I think I would need some time before I start dispensing it. So it's going to be sort of held in escrow and investments for about a year or so. And then what I'm going to do is start canvassing the popul- the, the people of interest who want to do something like this, either cookery or, or armored combat, and say, this is what I have. This is what I want to do to promote more scholarship. I mean, we do have a lot of scholars, but a lot of them are self-funded. Or you know, they're professors, or or, or they're people like you, independent scholars. Uh, but I want to promote mm-hmm. sort of the new era of scholarship, the new masters. You know, um, okay. so people who who take the manuscripts, but there's got to be something beyond that who promote it, make it relevant to today. So what I want to do, and as well as the equipment that goes along with it, to recreate all the equipment, so you can actually have a more more accurate experience with the the equipment either making more authentic cooking equipment or making, you know, better swords. I mean, we do have, you know, several great sword manufacturers here in the United States, but Eastern Europe <clears throat> is also a uh, hotbed of... of yeah, there, there are fabulous arms and armor yeah. makers all over I mean, the place these days. When I started this in the 90s, yeah. it was almost impossible to get a uh, long sword you could actually right. place with. Now, you can just order them off the internet and you've got a choice of like... 20 oh, different suppliers on three yeah. different continents. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, now that, you know, I know some of them are currently, you know, deployed elsewhere in Eastern Europe, you know, with, with the Ukraine-Russia conflict and all that. So some of those, sure. you know, people are, you know, making tanks to tank traps now instead of cull traps. You <laughs> yeah. know, so it's these well, fair skills. Enough. So, but, uh, and I don't want that knowledge to be lost. So I think promoting, you know, either through scholarships or, small business loans. Um, I think okay. having a foundation for that and people applying for grants to either travel to these historical areas or to the scholars or having the scholars travel elsewhere to promote their scholarship um, or build the next said build, build programs that will promote the next level of scholarship. I know, I think in California, there's a school there. And then I think there's also, um, you know, there are other seminars around the country, like in Atlanta has uh, Surfo, 
They have uh, other scholars down there, Dory Koblenz and other people, just promote the the people who's, you know, they have a day job, but they're also scholars as well to help support that, sure. you know. And, uh, and again, Dory's been on the show <laughs> no, as well. Dory's been on the show. <laughs> have you had David Biggs on the yeah. show yet? <laughs> No, see, the thing is, David Biggs and I are friends. We've been right, friends for a long right. time. Um, and I, I've seen him in person as recently as last yeah. year, right? And so when it comes to inviting people on the show, because of the goals of the yeah. show, I tend to prioritize people I don't know ah, personally. Okay. And I prioritize women. Okay. Right? Because the, the, the show has a 50% minimum, sorry, 51% minimum female guest yeah, list. Yeah. Um, right? Um, so, so David is definitely on my yeah. list of people to invite, and I know him really well. I know he'd come on yeah, in a heartbeat. Well, so, Wendy Colbert, you know, you know Wendy Colbert. Wendy Colbert. Yeah, she's a student. She's out of Pittsburgh. She retired from Pitt as a as a Montessori teacher, and she became a profession. She became a personal trainer. So, there's okay. another Wendy Colbert. Okay, another success. I will look into yeah. it. She's brilliant. Yeah, okay. she's David. Thank she's you. a good friend of David. So it's sort of like a second degree of generation. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know, any friend of David's is yeah. probably a friend. Yeah, of mine. Wendy and I are good friends. <laughs> Wendy, Wendy is a firm believer of teaching the mechanics of you know. I mean, she, oh, she's taught. We've we've taught in similar events where she brings all of her equipment, like her balance balls, some of her weights, and what she does mm-hmm. has a routine, has a fitness routine. She's more on the on the fitness side, and I'm like the, the nutrition side. So it's a great, it's complimentary and all that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so she's another one who's had a second, she's been fencing most of her life, and now she's doing, now she's retired from, you know, from that, and now she's doing, do, doing her next, her next thing is being a personal trainer, you know, which is great. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so I will, I will, I will have a little research yeah, yeah. and, and, um, I, I might I might ping you for an oh, introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, she'd be thrilled. <laughs> Brilliant. You know. Excellent. Um, okay, so with your million dollars, you'll create a sort of grant program to support the scholarship side yeah. of things. Um, and the equipment, yes. Yeah. And the kind of equipment yeah. and small business loans for people like me, yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, if I had the money, I'd probably give it oh, to you. Oh, thanks. I know. I have a great financial planner. You know, having a good financial planner is is, is, is key to success and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you're it's been, it's been enjoyable. I've really enjoyed getting to know you, and and uh, I'm 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 glad to be part of your uh, journey with uh, promoting more. Like you said, you know, more more women in in this in this sport that we all love dearly and all that, and hopefully I can you know, provide some insight into what it means to be an aging female athlete <laughs> and all that. He's still really young. <laughs> and I, and I, I appreciate the opportunity. So I look forward to uh, hearing it and then telling, of course, telling all my friends, <laughs> saying, Hey, look at this thing that I did. Isn't this really cool? <laughs> I was excited. It's like, cause when I got the message, I'm like, no, the, the, the guy, Blitzer. <laughs> And so when he told me, oh, oh, wait, she, she went for me. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> but thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And uh, I wish you the best of luck and everything. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ginny. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. 
While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Mark Geldof. He is a historian specialising in all kinds of historical violence. He has a DPhil in history from the University of Oxford on change and continuity in English elite conceptions of violence and an MA entitled The Heart, the Foot, the Eye to Accord, Procedural Writing in Three Middle English Manuscripts of Martial Instruction, as well as all sorts of other academic papers relevant to us historical martial artists. So you definitely don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really helps. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. (laughs) 